and welcome to the Corny and Lind Legal Chatter Podcast, where we discuss different but likely scenarios, provide general legal information, and get to know our lawyers. Please note that this podcast series does not provide or intends to provide legal advice. Hello and welcome to Corny and Lynn's first ever podcast. And on this podcast, we're a bunch of lawyers based in uh, Brisbane CBD. Um, we are a law firm that services churches, schools, charities, and we're trying to set up this podcast to be able to give some information out to church leaders out there, um, mainly dealing in issues of the law and things that you might find interesting. Uh, and I'm here today with Eustacia Yates, who's a family law team leader and special counsel at Corny and Lynn Lawyers. Hi, Eustacia. Hi, James. And Eustacia does quite a bit of work in family law, that's right, Eustacia? I pretty much only do exclusively family exclusively law. Exclusively family <laughs> law. And what are some of the things you, you do in the, on your day-to-day basis in, in Corny and Lynn? That's a great question because people often ask, what is family law? And uh, there seems to be some misconceptions out there that um, all I do is help people get a divorce. Um, But really the reality of my day-to-day is um, helping people make appropriate arrangements uh, for when they have already decided to separate. Um, The actual divorce is just a small part of what is often a a big and complex web of issues. Um, And you can imagine that the one separation leads to um, a whole host of practical um, and uh, a whole lot of practical issues that have to be attended to. So I'll ask a bit of a loaded question if that's okay, Eustacia. Uh, We're obviously a Christian law firm, but you're acting in family law. How does that work? Where does that sit with you personally? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And certainly when I first started practicing in this area, I had to wrestle very deeply with these issues. Um, At the end of the day, I think that everyone should be able to meet the love and concern and care of Jesus um, when they're facing a crisis in their life. Um, ideally they would meet with that every uh, every day but um, particularly when you're in circumstances of um, distress and heartache I think it's very important to be able to bring um, some um, love and concern to that situation and part of that is for me um, being able to provide them with information about what their legal entitlements are um, in their circumstances and what their legal responsibilities are in their circumstances. That's great Eustacia. Now Tell me a little bit about your dream about family law. I know you've got this secret project coming along called the Family Tree, or that's codenamed the Family Tree or whatever we're calling it. But tell me a little bit about what your dream is with family law and you know, how you think Christians and a Christian law firm could do family law a little bit better for the community. Mm. Well, I don't take an adversarial approach. <laughs> I guess that's the first thing. <laughs> so you're a nice person um, then. So I, I sort of subscribe to the... Uh, oath that doctors have to swear first of all do no harm (laughs) and um, I think that um, it's kind of an unusual situation um, that the law requires of people Um, when you are getting married there are lots of um, celebrations and heightened emotions but when you're separating um, and often for most people this is an extremely traumatic experience um, the law sort of requires that people park their emotions and become quite rational creatures 
and make decisions based on logic. And for the reality, sorry, the reality for most people is that that simply isn't possible. And they come um, to, they approach their legal issues with a whole host of overlaid emotions and um, expectations and theological positions. And so I think we can best serve our clients by meeting them in that space, accepting the holistic approach um, that they come with and um, attending to them holistically. So my dream in family law and for the family tree is to be able to offer um, what I would call a fairly peacemaking type legal services where we seek to employ alternative dispute resolution methods as much as possible. We don't rush straight to court, we explore every option. The second thing we'll do um, is offer in-house counselling services with a professional counsellor. Um, these will be accessible to our clients um, as a separate um, service. Obviously we don't provide them, we, we hire the <laughs> professionals to do it. I wouldn't know how to counsel anyone. <laughs> and then the third arm is uh, essentially what we're calling a um, almost a social work type role, really it's a referral service. Um, we know from experience that people in circumstances of um, relationship breakdown are often overwhelmed and even the simplest of tasks can be um, too difficult. So for example, um, phoning to make appointments um, at relevant um, service providers. Uh, we often hear as lawyers about um, people not being able to access food and transport and that sort of thing and of course as lawyers it's not our role to do anything about that um, but as a Christian lawyer I wanted to do something about that so the third arm would be referral uh, and where we're able to provide a um, person who is available to sit with clients and say hey you know I know that there's this church that's got um, a food bank operating or this church has a garden service um, to help you get the house ready for sale or or um, something like that. It's oh, great you, Stacia. <laughs> and speaking of churches and family law and trying to do things a little bit better, um, something that's been in the news quite, well, maybe not so recently, but definitely within the last couple of years is uh, the way churches approach domestic violence or the way that, you know, they've handled um, handled in the past, uh, handled it in the past. So uh, from, from your perspective, and again, this is probably another loaded question, but is there anything uh, you can speak to about that from, um, uh, and just uh, perhaps reflecting a bit on how um, you found churches have handled instances mm. of domestic violence? Yeah. I sort of hear all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear of some churches who are tremendously supportive mm. um, of their um, parishioners who are going through this experience. Um, and of course, I hear some tragic stories as well. Mm. Um, people who have approached their pastor or um, church leadership and um, made a disclosure of some kind and been met with uh, indifference, unkindness um, and judgment. And of course this is um, very damaging to them. Mm, absolutely. Well, for the benefit of our listeners and, um, and uh, church leaders, I thought what I would ask you is um, a bit of a scenario maybe and it could be something that I would expect uh, church leaders or church governors would encounter obviously it's not legal advice but um, uh, I think it'd be helpful to just map out some of these scenarios and see um, as a bit of a learning exercise uh, how a church governor or church leader might approach it um, um, and you know again it's uh, 
this may have been something you've seen in the good, the bad, and the ugly, <laughs> but let's just talk about it. Let's say you have uh, your church leader, or I'm a church leader, and um, one day um, I hear murmurings within the congregation that our worship leader um, is on the receiving end of an application for a protection order or a domestic violence order, if you, uh, which or an AVO in some other states. So they've got all sorts of different names on it, but. Basically, the allegation is um, worship leader um, has been domestically violent to his partner, and, um, and and an application has been brought against him. How should a church governor or a church leader approach this situation, apart from having a meltdown or <laughs> calling the lawyer or whatever they, they do? Yes. Yeah. Look, it sounds like a simple question, and um, unfortunately, my response is slightly lawyery mm. uh, in the sense of, um, well, it depends. <laughs> Um, of course, we like to get a range of, um, oh, sorry, a full complement of instructions before giving um, specific advice to clients. But as a general proposition, um, I think there are a few things that church leaders should be aware of. Um, I have done a recent uh, a webinar on the ABCs of family law um, as a first response. I've, I've entitled it Family Law First Aid. Um, and the first thing I would say is, it's important that safety is prioritised, um, and that would be the safety of the aggrieved party. Um, so if, if that worship leader's uh, wife um, or de facto partner or carer or whoever it is so who has brought the application um, is also in attendance in the congregation, um, there might need to be some considerations there about whether um, the church can continue to provide a safe environment um, for, for that person. I'll just um, note too that in Queensland, um, when we're talking about domestic and family violence, we're actually talking about quite a wide range of um, relationships in which someone can bring a protection order application. So um, in Queensland, that means looking at the Domestic and Family Violence Protection Act. And in that, uh, in that act, um, the person suffering the violence um, has to be in a relevant relationship with the person perpetrating it. And the relevant relationships are actually quite broadly defined, um, which has come as a surprise, I think, to most most people. So it's not just and you know, um, the traditional view of someone hitting um, someone that they're married to, but it goes beyond that, it doesn't it? It goes much, much further beyond that, that's mm -hmm. right. So the relationship could be a married couple, uh, as, as you've just identified, but it could also be a family relationship uh, in the sense that um, a brother or a sister can make an application, an aunt or an uncle um, can bring an application against their, their nephew or niece. Um, so it could be a parent-child, um, cousin-to-cousin type relationship. So in, in the worship pastor situation, the, the question would be, well, who's brought the application? Mm. Um, is it in fact their... Um, spouse or is it um, their brother or is it their uh, sister-in-law or is it mm. um, even the person that they're engaged to but not married to which mm -hmm. would also be a relevant relationship mm. so that might inform your response as a church leadership mm. and the types of abuse that's recognized under mm. the um, DV Act it's not just physical abuse is it it's things no like absolutely not yeah. um, so there, there's quite a wide range of behaviors that are covered um, there's obviously the physical abuse that we would immediately jump to in our minds mm. um, but it also covers quite explicitly economic abuse 
uh, emotional and psychological abuse, obviously sexual abuse, there's no surprise there. But what's at the heart of all of it um, is any behaviour that controls or dominates the other person, causing them to fear for their safety or well-being. Mm. And so even in controlling, um, when we talk about this whole uh, element of control, mm. um, it could even potentially include spiritual abuse or spiritual control. And, as, and, some, and that's something I hear about within church communities mm. where um, you have... Uh, perhaps husbands who take that, <laughs> take uh, what's said in the Bible a bit too far in imposing um, unhealthy levels of control. Yes. All, all control is unhealthy, but um, really quite damaging behaviors within within um, the family. That's right, and it's often behaviors that, in and of itself, you wouldn't necessarily jump to as a conclusion mm. that there's um, abuse occurring. But um, put together with other behaviors um, and with an understanding that the behaviour is designed to control, mm. um, it could very well fall into that category of, of domestic violence. The Act actually sets out some examples which I think are very helpful. Mm. Um, so, for example, um, th threatening to commit suicide or self-harm so as to torment or um, intimidate or frighten the other person. Um, things like reading a person's text messages or monitoring their email account. Um, unauthorised surveillance, um, which means unreasonably monitoring or tracking their mm. movements. Um, so there's threatening injury to an animal, for example, um, controlling all of the finances mm. um, in a way that... Um, and one example is um, the husband who says, I'll give you $300 a week and you have to just um, do everything with that. Um, she might respond with, I've spent all the 300 this week um, because there's been a range of expenses and I need an extra 20 to have a script filled mm -hmm. uh, and is met with the comment, if I give you uh, that money, then how will you ever learn to manage um, a budget? Mm. Um, and then that, that partner goes without medication that week. Mm. So it, it can come in all kinds of forms mm -hmm. um, and I guess there are certain things that, um, you know, to look out for that are well beyond the mm. physical abuse that we mm. might think of. Yeah, and, and I think just coming back to this example of discovering that the worship leader has um, uh, been served with an application for a protection order, um, I really like what you've said about safety first and especially for the person who's brought the protection order. Mm. I've heard of many sad stories where um, the the worship leader has perhaps been prioritized over the person who's feeling unsafe, for example. Um, and, uh, and and I think, you know, that uh, from my personal perspective, I can mm. find that quite concerning. So mm. I really liked what you said there. Mm. Um, uh, what's next, though? So if we, we've identified, let's say we've identified that, uh, that, that you know, the church leader has perhaps talked about it with the worship leader. And has identified, oh, there's some substance here, and they've made some arrangements for the aggrieved to feel safe. Um, what what next, and what what are some practical things after that that mm. uh, the church leader could be doing to try and um, approach the situation? Yeah, um, I think it's important then, uh, as a matter of first aid, if you like, <laughs> um, to 
see what practical help can be provided mm. um, to the aggrieved party. Mm. Um, often they are forgotten mm. um, and marginalised. Mm. Um, and we actually know statistically that the incidence of false reporting are very low. Mm. Oh, um, really? That's right. Um, and that's that's interesting because that's contrary to a lot of the um, public perception, public perception that's that right. someone's just making this up to get the leg up on the other person or to damage their reputation. That's right. But I think there'd be a lot of shame associated, especially, for example, if there's in a church, it's if, if, in, if it's in a church context as well, it, mm. it could be quite difficult for um, someone to try and bring an end to a relationship. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of practical help then, um, it is good to... Um, Consider the full range of needs of the person who's aggrieved and, mm. and has brought the application. Mm. Um, it might be the sort of application where they need to move out mm. uh, and providing some practical assistance around that is mm. a very tangible way mm. to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus, mm. if you like. Mm. Um, and then probably um, I would suggest that the third uh, step would be to make appropriate referrals. Mm. Mm. Um now let's. Uh, can I ask a question? A couple of questions about the uh, protection order. Let's say, after we've, after we've taken the practical steps to help the aggrieved and sort of figure out how we're going to delicately manage the worship leader's transition out from his um, duties, if that's the way the governance is, uh, the church governance is approaching that as an appropriate step. Um, and then we, and let's say, they've um, gone through this legal process where they go into the Maggie's court, magistrate's court rather. And, um, and a protection order is made at, at the end of it. Um, well, can you tell me about what sort of usual things would be included within that protection order? Mm. Because I can imagine if, um, you know, uh, I guess as the community calls it, a bit of a restraining order mm. where someone's not allowed to approach someone within 100 meters, that could create a bit of a problem for Sunday worship. Or if there's something such as um, um, if the, the worship leaders uh, uh, serving in Sunday school, for example, and I understand some of these protection orders can have an impact on um, on, on uh, a person's blue card eligibility. Um, what are some things that you know a, a church ministry leader would need to know if one of their volunteers um, is the subject of a protection order? Well, I think that you would want to know what the conditions are um, mm. of the order. Some protection orders are fairly brief. Uh, mm. in the sense that they will simply state that the um, respondent must not commit acts of domestic violence mm -hmm. uh, against the aggrieved. Uh, and some are very extensive, um, mm. setting out all kinds of conditions, and mm. they might run to two or three pages. Uh, it may include things like not being able to come within 100 metres of, of the aggrieved's place of residence mm. um, or their person or uh, places they regularly frequent, mm. um, and that would include potentially a church. Um, it may um, specifically prohibit um, the respondent from asking someone else to locate um, the person who's aggrieved. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a bit of a trap for pastors. Um, who That's have, right, have to, so they have to take care of both in a way. Well, up to a point. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful quote actually by um, Lundy Bancroft, um, who has written the textbook that QUT uses for mm. their um, domestic violence course. Mm. Um, which just runs along the lines that an abuser will 
uh, much prefer you to have the have you wholeheartedly on their side, mm. um, but would actually settle for having you take a neutral stance, because uh-huh. um, neutrality actually serves the interests of the abuser far more um, than the than the victim, mm. um, because if it's a little bit his fault and a little bit her fault, mm. then it's not abuse. Mm. You see, mm. so um, I do think pastors need to be careful of. Of being neutral mm. um, because that actually serves the perpetrator's interests um, mm. significantly. Mm. But the other trap, I guess, for pastors is that um, they may often be approached um, to act as a sort of intermediary. I guess. Wow. Um, oh, I, I've, you know, I've been I've been asked to move out of home. I've got a protection order against me. Um, I really just want to reconcile with my partner. Um, mm. Could you just reach out and see if they'll talk to me? Mm. Now, that will be a breach of the protection order um, because uh, you're not allowed, um, as a pretty well standard order, mm. um, to ask someone else to make contact with the um, protected person. Mm. Most pastors don't know that. And um, whilst the issuing of a protection order is a civil matter, breaching a protection order is a criminal matter. Mm. And the last thing pastors want is to find themselves in a position of having assisted the commission of a crime. Oh, no. So uh, I think um, proceed with caution. Don't be neutral. Mm. Support the aggrieved. Mm. Um, you mentioned before about whether they step out of their ministry role or not. Yes. Obviously, I speak from a family law mm. per- perspective, mm. and I can't speak to the um, church governance issues. But mm. one thing I have noticed is that... Um, Pastors tend to hold fairly strong views about um, marriage and family, and and that's appropriate. Um, I think when you're a pastor, if you're not across marriage, births and deaths, then you know <laughs> what, what what are you doing? It's core business, you know. <laughs> and, and most of most pastors would have a fairly um, well thought out view of what a marriage mm. should be. Mm. What I see in practice is that a lot of them will jump from the disclosure or the discovery of an issue straight to their ideal theological outcome Mm. and start giving advice around what that should be. Mm. For example, you should return home, Mm. you should um, listen to him, you should submit, you Mm. should, you know, these sorts of things. But I would just encourage pastors to pause and understand that in that moment between the disclosure of, of a DV issue and or a discovery of that, and the space in between uh, that and their ideal theological outcome needs to be very carefully managed. Mm. Um, and I would just encourage them, I guess, to step into that space with a full awareness that their own views uh, and theological positions are informed by their own history, their particular um, theological training, because there are different ways to read, of course, these texts. Mm. Um, and that to make that space in between um, a safe, sacred space mm. for um, mm. victims of domestic violence. Mm. Um, and it does require some careful management. Oh, absolutely. And especially if you're highlighting that um, something as simple as uh, trying to help them to uh, come back together under the same roof could be potentially getting a commission for crime. That's right. That's and, right. And... Um, and you know, by letting them potentially return to 
um, Sunday school when their blue card has been terminated because of the protection order yes. could also be another issue and create all sorts of other flow-on effects. It really just seems to be a bit of a minefield for pastors, but one where um, if they're not going into it with, uh, I guess, being informed and fully mm -hmm. understanding all the facts and circumstances, then uh, they could potentially be exposing someone to a lack of safety or uh, well, creating some further issues down the track when uh, if the police were to show up at church one day, absolutely. God forbid. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, good. Yeah. So, Mr. I think that's that's all the time we have for today. So, just as a bit of a send-off, is, is there anything you think that um, our pastors would uh, would benefit from hearing in terms of uh, when it comes to family law? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I think just to have uh, a great sense of compassion for mm. people. Um, and to, in my experience, most people in family law situations are suffering. Mm. And we know that um, Jesus didn't shy away from the suffering. Mm. Um, he entered into it. And so I guess I would just encourage them not to take the approach that these issues are too difficult uh, or too um, hard to manage. Or, if, or there's no quick fix. <laughs> yes, uh, or there's no quick fix, and sometimes it's just journeying with someone mm. through it. Mm. Um, and, and also to seek advice, I guess. Mm. Um, you know, I'm happy to come and speak. <laughs> I'm, happy, <laughs> I'm happy to to, to, to perform a seminar or, or give Talk a sermon. Talk about first aid again, you said. Talk about first aid, that's right. Good. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, Eustacia. Thank you for listening to the Corny and Lind Legal Chatter Podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode of Corny and Lind Legal Chatter. If you require specific legal advice for your situation, contact us directly on 0732520011 or go to www.cornyandlind.com.au forward slash contact.